Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. As we just sang there, a reminder that today is All Saints Sunday, and we'll be considering that theme today. We begin in Revelation chapter 14 for our call to worship. It's part of our sermon message this morning, Revelation uh, 14, excuse me, 14 verse 13. Hear God's word. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle, and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Thus far, the reading of God's word. We need to be reformed in God's presence, as we are known as reformed people, not removed from God's presence. And so it is with many of our holidays. The Reformation rightly removed many saints' days, but several of our holidays need to be reformed and not removed. The church began to celebrate All Saints' Day in the 300s, celebrating the victorious saints at rest with Christ, probably as a result of the martyrdoms that had happened in the centuries one or two before. Over time, superstition and error creeped in, and All Hallows' Eve turned into Halloween. And like Mardi Gras revelry before Lent's piety, Halloween became the devil's last stand before the celebration of the Holy Ones in glory. So it's important to get the big picture on the Christian calendar year from time to time. Now, this is a good time to do that at the end of that year. It begins December 1 with Advent and Christmas when we celebrate the coming of the light of the world at our coldest and darkest hour. We then celebrate Christ's death and resurrection in the spring, the time of new life. We celebrate Pentecost at the beginning of summer when God cultivates our new life in the spirit. Summer is the time of growth. And and fall is when the harvest comes in. And we have All Saints Day to remember those who have entered their rest and thanksgiving for the harvest. Meanwhile, Satan makes one last grab at the end of history, and that is Halloween. So all of history, in a way, is dramatized in the church year. And it's all pointing to the vindication of Christ's saints at the end, as they appear with Christ when he comes again. So we need to reform and to recover All Saints Day. Let's return thanks to God for fruitful saints now at rest with Christ and look with hope to our joining them in the immediate presence of Christ one day. So with that in mind, let's uh, confess our sins before Almighty God and encourage you to kneel if you're able and we'll pray together. that as we turn back to your word that uh, as we have been reading as we will read again as we uh, meditate upon it that we would continue in worship of you 
So often, Lord, we think of uh, our acts of worship as song and prayer uh, and the, the message as something that the preacher does. Lord, let us uh, remember that we are worshiping you as we read your word, as we hear it proclaimed. Uh, let us uh, proclaim and believe this in our hearts as well, that our uh, hearts and our lives, our families and our communities may be transformed, conformed more to the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, I begin with some trepidation. I think this is my first message to you from the book of Revelation. Uh, I think John Calvin was famously known for not preaching from Revelation uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and just to tamp down expectations a little bit right off the bat, this is more of a topical message on Reformation Day and All Saints Day than a verse-by-verse exposition. So I'm not going to deal much with the beast and its image. Sorry, we'll deal with that some other time. But we're looking today at God's sovereignty uh, over saints and sinners. Uh, the book of Revelation, one of its main themes is God's sovereignty over all things. Uh, even if we don't understand all the details, uh, that is the big message. So Reformation Sunday last week, All Saints Sunday today, I'm going to kind of fuse those themes together and there's a great deal to consider uh, there. Uh, For Reformation, again, we could talk more about the five solas. We only really got through the first one before. We could talk about tulip, uh, the five points of total depravity and irresistible grace and so on. Uh, We'll do that uh, again some other time. The bigger point, one of the big points of the Reformation was God's sovereignty. That God indeed is sovereign, and All Saints Day is a great time to consider that. So the the theme again this morning, and again I forgot to get it printed in the bulletin, so here it is. God is sovereign over saints and sinners in life and death. And God's going to see his design for mankind done, and that design is the nations blessed and redeemed in Christ. So God is sovereign, he's in control. So uh, I've got a series of points here where that's that's the, 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 the point. God is sovereign over this, over that, over the other thing. So those are the points today. The first one is that God is sovereign over the saints. God's sovereign over the saints. That's the first five verses of the chapter. And here's a little bit of uh, a key to uh, reading Revelation, uh, at least how I read Revelation. This 144,000 of saints, uh, this is a, a figurative number uh, where 144,000 represents 12 times 12,000. Uh, and 12 is a number of perfection in Scripture. Uh, so the, the point being made here is that these people, God's people, these saints, they are numbered, which means they're known and they're secure, right? Like all, each hair of our head is numbered, Jesus says. But when Jesus says that, he does, he's not just saying that God can count really high or that he knows all the details. It, it's a point of sovereignty, right? That, that God not only knows each of your hairs, He's in control, he's managing, he's caring for. So God is sovereign over the saints. These saints are numbered, they're named, they're identified, they belong to God. And they worship God in his immediate presence. All of these things, a whole host of attributes being asserted here through this picture. They're holy. The sexual purity mentioned is a symbol of their spiritual purity. They've been cleansed. They no longer struggle with sin. So one of the main points here, and, we, and this is often misread to say that this is a special set, a special class of people. These were the ones who were more holy than everybody else, so they got to heaven first kind of point. No, not, not at all. The point is that this is you. This is all the saints. 
This is All Saints Day. This is not some extra holy class of other people. We are all saints. We are the saints. Uh, each believer in Christ, uh, you, you are known, you are numbered by God. Every in and out of your psyche, all of your sinful desires, all of your godly desires, God knows it all, and he loves you. God is sovereign over the saints. This God who is in control of the, the whole world and the end of time, he is good, and he gives us what we need. And again, what we see that we, that we are and what we need here in this first five verses, again, we, we need security, we need identity, we need purity, and we need to worship God. And that's what we see the saints here in these five verses doing. Uh, they are also, verse 4, a beautiful phrase. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Great picture. Sometimes, uh, and it's wonderful to consider, but it's often painful sometimes to actually do. Because sometimes Jesus calls us to suffer for Him. And He sometimes takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. That phrase just a couple of days ago reminded me of the, it's a Lord of the Rings reference again. It's when Aragorn goes through the, the paths of the dead. Right? And you, and you have the, his followers, uh, who is it, the dwarf and the elf, I've forgotten, it's been a while, Gimli and, and, and uh, Legolas and the other guys. They're very nervous. They don't want to go. Right? This is scary stuff. This is where the dead people are. It's kind of a Halloween story almost. But they go because Aragorn goes. The, the saints of God follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It's a great picture of loyalty that even if Jesus goes there, we will follow him. We will go where the lamb goes. So God is sovereign over the saints. And um, kids, I don't know if you know the story, or the song, I mean. There's a song that goes, he's got the whole world in his hands. You know that song? He's got the whole world. I've got a little phrase that, that I've kind of made up for each of the points here today. So he's got you and me, brother. In his hands. That's one of the phrases of the song. Jesus, God has the saints in his hands. So I'll be, be, watch, be listening for the, the little singing of the phrase at the end of every point here. That's the first one. God is sovereign over the saints. Second is God is sovereign over creation. And now we're going to start skipping around a little bit. But verse 7 uh, describes God, says, Fear God, uh, worship him, end of the verse. Who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. We are just talking before the service about uh, the conference, and uh, Peter Lightheart talked about creation and how God made all things. Uh, God shaped the heavens, the earth, the sea. He makes the grass and the crops grow. He sends the snow, that little wave of sleet we had yesterday, if you got some of that too. He, he sends the dryness and the fire that we see and hear about in California. God sends the treasures of snow, the phrase is from Job, uh, from the sky. God is sovereign over all of creation. That's the second much shorter point there. He's got the wind and the rain in his hands. God is sovereign over that. God's sovereign third over the nations. Verse 6, here we see the, the strong angel uh, proclaiming the gospel to all those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. That theme comes up over and over in Revelation in all of Scripture, that God is sovereign over the nations, and he, the gospel comes to all of them. Uh, the nations, Isaiah says, are like a drop in the bucket. 
compared to God's power. And that's something we need to remember, and we need to remember it especially when we're listening to the news, I think. Right? We're easily impressed with power and with the conglomeration of resources into big nations with big weapons, into big corporations with big budgets. Those things impress us. But God laughs at all these little babble towers that we try to raise to establish our own name outside of Christ. But in Christ, God is going to bless all the nations as he promised Abraham in his original covenant promise from Genesis 12. God's going to save us from our own foolishness and restore all things. So we can uh, sing. Now I'm going to start singing different kinds of phrases. He's got America and Europe in his hands. He's got Iran and China in his hands. He's got President Trump in his hands. He's got the coming election in his hands. God's sovereign over the nations, right? That's verse 6. Uh, the, the fourth point I have is that God is sovereign over our will. Uh, this one uh, we don't see so explicitly in the text. This is more a Reformation Day theme I'm coming at you with. Uh, God, Jesus says in John 6 that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Right? And we see the contrast in our text. Verse uh, 9 through 12, 9 through 11, is uh, those who are worshiping the beast. And then a contrast to verses 12 and 13. Here's a call for the, the saints to endure. You see those worshiping the beast. There, that's a call for you to endure. So uh, we have a call for us to, to endure, but we also remember, remember it's God who gives us the grace to do so. Uh, Isaiah reports God is declaring that he will not give his glory to any of his creatures. Right? And that's what the Reformers saw the corrupt church doing back in the 1500s, taking God's glory for herself, making the people in the church rely cravenly on the church, rely on the bishop speaking certain words to turn the communion elements into Jesus so we could be saved, or rely on paying for an indulgence or uh, saying Mass or an Our Father, that kind of thing. Uh, today, we can have the same kind of problem, just it shows up in different ways, right? In the evangelical church, uh, we can rely too much on methods and techniques to manage our behavior, uh, to think that that saves us. And that's also a problem. We come to rely on our own decision to trust Christ instead of on God's grace in giving Christ to us. That's as much as a problem, I, th I think, as the corrupt church in, uh, of Rome back then. Uh, so th they both rob God of his glory, and the reformers spoke out. Uh, so our minds and our hearts are not free from sin to please God on our own. We are stuck in Egypt without God's grace, uh, and, and those things uh, closest and most precious to us, uh, like our health, our body, our children, our mental faculties, think of that with my nephew right now, these things are in God's control and not ours. There are some things we can do, but we're in God's hands. He's got your brain and your body in his hands. He's got your choices and your children in his hands. God is sovereign over our will, over uh, our choices. Uh, back to the text in verse 8, we see next that God is sovereign over sin. Uh, Babylon is fallen, the second angel proclaims. In a, a short description, there's other descriptions elsewhere in Revelation about this uh, Babylon figure. Uh, she has made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon, the great harlot, 
offered many sins to many people, caused many to fall and to die. And we are those who raise our children a certain way because of our profound rejection of those things, because we don't want them, our children, to see or be tempted by those things yet. And that is right. But, but we need to realize that ultimately we are not able to keep the darkness out of their lives or out of our own hearts completely, right? There is a spiritual war going on. So we can sing that he's got Hollywood in his hands. He's got your temptations in his hands. God's sovereign over those things too. And he proclaims the fall of Babylon in the end. Next thing is, is uh, God's sovereignty over judgment. And here you see the beast uh, in verses 9 through 12, and then verses 14 through 20 also. And this is where we come to a more All Saints Day theme as well. Uh, that picture at the very end, verse 18 through 20, it's gruesome. I don't know if you uh, picture that in your mind, it's, it's an R-rated kind of thing. right? Notice the harvest imagery. Uh, the unbeliever is really foolish when you think about it. He's growing up as a weed in God's field all along thinking that he's the Lord of the field. It's really foolish. Uh, he, he's going to get a rude awakening when the combine comes and mows him down and throws him into the place of darkness and smoke and fire. God's judgment is real. Uh, now the corrupt medieval church used this truth to scare people into giving money to the church. Again, think of the, the wickedness of that. Buy Uncle Joe out of this horror. The reformers didn't back away from the truth of hell. It's true. They warned people of it. But they called for faith in Christ, which is free. That's, uh, that's the way to salvation. They rejected this craven dependence on the church to work some magic for the right price to get you out of hell. So God is sovereign over judgment. God's sovereign over hell. Right? And here, this is one of those passages where we get a, a detailed picture of it. Verse 10 is the, the most uh, acute. Uh, the unbeliever will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. I think that's an important verse. Some people talk about hell as the absence of God. And in some ways that's right. But we also see here that... The, 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 uh, those condemned are tormented in the presence of the Lamb. In other words, the, the Lamb knows what's going on. He, he's supervising that, right? And that raises all kinds of questions for us, but we need to maintain that God is sovereign over hell. Uh, the angels and the Lamb are there. They aren't gloating in a wicked way, right? Jesus has the keys of hell. He rules it. And God's wrath is, is full strength there. Now, uh, God stands ready to open the door for the repentant. Now. But in hell, they hate Jesus all the more. They would rather stay there than submit to him. And Jesus lets them. Jesus made them to glorify and to enjoy God, but they revile and hate him. And so God justly punishes. God is sovereign in his judgment. He has fair and just punishment in his hands. He's got eternal hell in his hands. That's one you don't want to sing to the kids' song. It doesn't fit the music with the message, but it's true. Verse 12, we see the wicked prospering and advancing their agenda on earth. We hear of them persecuting Christians. 
Sometimes we see it happen in small ways at work or in the media. But we can be patient and we can persevere knowing what will happen in the end. And the difference in the end is, is stark between the ungodly and the righteous in Christ. The ungodly go to horror and torment, uh, and the saints, uh, verse uh, 13, they go to glory and light and pleasures forevermore. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And the Spirit jumps in uh, to that proclamation. Yes, they rest from their labors. Their works follow them. What a blessed picture of rest and reward. And, and on our end, it's hard to let go. Right? We think of death from, from, our, uh, from our earthly vantage point, whether it's a, a baby in miscarriage or a parent or a niece in a tragic car accident. A piece of our heart goes with the ones that we love, and it hurts. Kids, if you can imagine it this way, this might help. Imagine Thanksgiving is coming, right? Imagine it's Thanksgiving noon, and you find a piece of candy on the coffee table in the living room, and you pick it up to eat it. But right at that minute, Mom calls you to the next room for dinner, and she says, put that down and come here, right? Oh, that's hard to do because you've got candy in your hand. But you don't, you, you don't know what's coming in the next room, this feast. <laughs> you can't see it, and you want the candy you've got. Right? That's kind of a, a trivial picture. It doesn't do the, the reality of such consequence justice. It, but, but letting that loved one go is hard to do. But, but they've been taken to God, and they're enjoying a feast now. And that's coming for you, too. Letting that loved one go is hard to do. But, but God is sovereign over death. And with that control, he gives rest, and he gives reward. He's got the tiny little baby in his hands. He's got your father and your mother in his hands. He's got all the saints in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Uh, in verse 13, I'd like to expand on this point further and uh, go now from the God is Sovereign over series of points uh, to talking again about the cultural mandate. In verse uh, 13, they rest from their labors. At the end of the verse, it says, their deeds follow them. Your works follow you. Uh, it isn't all going to burn, as we like to say. Right? Your labor is not in vain here. Your works follow you. Your reward for faithfulness God granted you will go with you. So connect God's sovereignty to his first command to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion over all creatures in creation. Again, God's first act of sovereignty after creation itself was to make us rulers under him and for him, to take dominion of the creation he made. And when you, we talk about take dominion, that doesn't mean do whatever you want with it, right? That word dominion is a little loaded in that direction. It's easily misunderstood. But it means harness the resources God has given you and use them to produce fruit pleasing to him. So your works follow you. It doesn't all burn in the end. We read this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8 through 15, right? That's Paul talking about ministry and others doing gospel ministry after him. If they build on the foundation of Christ, it'll last through the fire at the end, is what Paul says. There is a burning at the end. There is a cleansing in that way, but our faithful works follow us. 
And because of that, we think of church history again, think of the reformers. We often think of Luther nailing the theses to the door. But there's way more to the story than confronting uh, popes and Roman Catholic uh, prelates. The reformers served on city councils. They set up schools. They wrote books. They cared for the poor. You don't do those things if you think it's all hopeless. And the reformers, uh, had a, a, they were plowing in hope, as it says in uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, had occasion again recently to uh, look in the back of my Reformation study Bible. Uh, that's, there's some uh, good resources in there. James Boyce uh, wrote an article on God's sovereignty. And he said in part this, Reformed people have had various views in this area as far as living in the world and uh, what, uh, culture is, what we need to do in, in culture. He says, depending on the extent to which they believe such a transformation is possible, which is a good statement, but we would perhaps take a more particular view there. He goes on to say, all the Reformed believe we are to be in the world, not withdrawn from it like monks. Right? Jesus doesn't pray for us to be taken out of the world, but for us to be faithful in it. So God promised to bless all the nations through Abraham's seed. And he has kept that promise. And he's fulfilling it to the end. Uh, just a uh, little, little political point here this morning. Uh, I hope you realize, to the extent that America is great, it is not because she is free. That's a point we often, uh, we love freedom, and that's good. But sometimes we, we um, put freedom on too high of a pedestal. I know that's provocative to say. But America is not great because she is free. America is not great because her people are enterprising and hardworking, not because of our Christian heritage even. All those things may be true, but America is great because God has kept his promise to Abraham to bless every nation in Christ. And we are citizens of this great nation. We are in the world, and in the world we are to be doing these things, to evangelize, to, to meet basic needs for the poor, to work for godly practices and laws in, in, in neighborhoods and in nations. Reformers are transformers of culture. And it's true that there's a Babylon that burns at the end, the corrupt city of man. But that doesn't keep us from working and building and looking for faith for a better city coming down from heaven. It's a bit frustrating because God keeps taking the stones that he chisels down here, right? I'm referring to us in 1 Peter 2. Uh, he says, you are living stones, right? He keeps taking those stones and transferring them up to the church triumphant where we can't see them. <laughs> but that building is going to come down, the, the bride, the, the city of God, uh, in the end. So we need to believe that, that vision, that picture. Uh, our fathers and mothers worked, uh, works followed them, and yours will follow you, and your children will do more and different things than you. And it's all by God's sovereign grace that he builds his city. So God's sovereignty means that we work hard. He, he uses us to do his will in part. Uh, part of what the church had wrong that the reformers reformed was the dignity of normal work. Uh, people tend to th think, and they thought back then too, that becoming a monk or a priest or a pastor or a missionary is more spiritual than being a shoemaker or a blacksmith or, or a project manager, an engineer, or an accountant. And the church exploited that sometimes still do, 
and let people think that it, let people think that, and that increased the church's earthly influence self-servingly. No, no, we are building God's kingdom as we manage that project, as we balance the books, as we teach our children, as we study for a test, as we build a deck, fix a, a washing machine, mend clothing, grind away in the shop, call home for lunch, make doctor's appointments. The list goes on and on. We're building God's kingdom in the mundane callings that we have. It doesn't feel like you're building God's kingdom in these things, and, and that's because the fall has distorted and frustrated the goal of much of our employment. But we can believe that God is going to carry it to completion instead of throw it all in the trash. We need to believe that. that your labor is not in vain, Scripture tells us. All creation groans in the travail of labor, Romans 8 says, but the result will not be a stillbirth. It's going to be a huge nation, born in a day, Isaiah says in a great phrase. God's sovereignty means we work hard, knowing we are instruments of that sovereignty. We're not just puppets that aren't really doing anything. And the final point on that is that God's sovereignty means we're never desperate. Faithful people are not desperate people. We're often distressed uh, often uh, persecuted, but not desperate, not giving way to, um, to, to despair uh, or craven fear. So we're called to, to work to evangelize people, to serve people, to give food and clothes, to, to pr- provide a freedom-loving government so that we can live a peaceful life and pursue godliness. But when we get frustrated in those efforts, we don't get desperate. God's in control. We are only watering. If someone walks away when we mention Jesus, God's got it covered. If someone abuses charity offered, God's got it covered. If government gets more overbearing and tyrannical, God's got it covered. That doesn't mean we shrug and give up. It means we don't lose faith and fall into into fear. We don't go into fight mode where the lost or the poor or the liberals (laughs) are the enemy that we need to deride or destroy, right? That's God's business, and he does it as we see in this text. But it means for now, he means us to be tools to redeem messed up people, starting with ourselves. Uh, there's a, a, a good uh, book out there called Gilead. It's a book about a, an old pastor who's reflecting on his life. Uh, and part of the, the book goes like this. Uh, Cultural pessimism is always fashionable. And since we're human, there are always grounds for it. (laughs) It's a Calvinist author who knows about total depravity. Cultural pessimism, they call it. This encourages a kind of somber panic, a bitter hostility toward most of the people in the culture that the pessimists are always feeling their intent on rescuing. Right? It creates a paradox there, you see. To indulge in fear and contempt is our gravest error. That's very important. So, we, and we, we go that way when we're not trusting God's sovereign goodness. God's going to see his design for mankind done. The nations blessed and redeemed in Christ. God indeed is sovereign over saints and sinners in life and in death. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's go to God in prayer now. I'm going to have an extended prayer regarding All Saints Sunday at this time. Heavenly Father, we come before you the God of glory. Your word calls us to give glory to you, though we are so quick to grab it for ourselves. 
Even your church has done this in the past and needed reformation. And we come before you with thanks for reformation's past. We thank you also for the saints on this All Saints Sunday. We thank you for Adam's work of regathering his family in faith after Abel's murder. We praise you for Abraham reckoning God's promises true by faith. We thank you for Rebecca being willing to leave her home and marry Isaac. We praise you for the midwives in Egypt who disobeyed Pharaoh and preserved life. We thank you for the faith of Rahab that led her to send the police the wrong way, justifying her before God. We thank you for Gideon who tore down his father's idol, for Jeremiah, uh, for Micah, for Jonah, for Malachi, prophets who spoke truth in powerful places regardless of the consequences. We praise you for gospel writers and nameless early believers who spread the message of Jesus to their neighbors, for the ministry of Paul and Timothy and Titus, for Stephen who did not flinch but preached Jesus to a hostile audience and prayed to Jesus while the stones hit him. We praise you, Lord, for the lives of faithful saints beyond Scripture. As we consider history, we thank you for Athanasius, who stood for Trinitarian truth against the majority of churchmen. We thank you for Augustine, the African bishop, who taught the church her confidence as Rome fell around her. We thank you for Patrick, who converted most of Ireland without any violence. For Boniface, who courageously cut down the idols of my ancestors. For Charlemagne, who provided for much Christian learning. For Anselm, who considered the infinite atonement needed. For the infinite dishonor of our sin. For faithful soldiers serving the Lord as they knew best against militant Islam in Spain and in Israel. For the learning of Abelard and Aquinas, the piety of Francis of Assisi, the reforms of Wycliffe and Huss and Tyndale and Bootser and Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Knox. We thank you for the faithful enterprise and ambition to take the faith to a new world of Columbus and John Smith and William Bradford, for the faithful walking into a modern world, for Westminster assemblymen like Jeremiah Burroughs and Samuel Rutherford. We thank you for men like John Bunyan scribbling a story in prison separated from his family. We thank you for Fox, who chronicled many of these saints. We thank you again for John Knox, who confronted the queen, who prayed, give me Scotland or I die. Lord, may we imitate him in zeal and intercede with you for our nation. We thank you, Lord, for William Carey, Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson, David Brainerd, Dr. Livingston, other pioneering missionaries who sought to bring the light of Christ to those in ignorance. For George Whitfield and John Wesley, who burned with a zeal to evangelize all men to preach Christ crucified. For Blaise Pascal, Jonathan Edwards, Patrick Henry, George Washington, Charles Spurgeon, George Machen, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Francis Schaeffer, or the list can go on and on. But we give you thanks, too, for less known saints but saints who are dear in heart to us, who have gone before us to glory. For little ones that we have not met, those you called to yourself before they were born, some from those sitting among us. 
Lord, you have given them, uh, our fathers and mothers and family and friends, you've given them rest from the wars which never cease in this earth. And we consider them before you now, gratefully remembering how you have glorified yourself through them, how they enriched our lives as parents and grandparents and siblings, children and friends. For all of this, Lord, we give you thanks. We praise you for your sovereignty over all the saints, over all creation, in judgment, and in the consummation to come. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word. Chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will give them to, to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This Lord's table proclaims the death of Christ until he comes again to undo death completely. Until then, we celebrate communion with Christ, as a phrase of our liturgies has it, mindful of the communion of the saints. Not only those saints around us here, but the church triumphant. We sing this in one of our great hymns. The church on earth has union with God, the three in one. Mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, may dwell with thee. Uh, when we bury them, sometimes we hear these words, Thank you, Lord, that for them their trials and temptations and warfare have ended, that they have entered the rest you prepared for your people. Well, this table, every Lord's Day, is a pointer to that rest for us. We not only look back to the cross and the empty tomb at this table, we not only look around in the present at those with us he has redeemed by his blood, we also look ahead to when his kingdom has fully come, when sorrow and death have been done away, when life and joy and fellowship endure and flourish. So until then, let us receive Christ and rest on him alone for our salvation. We invite you to the Lord's table, all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his, his body, the church, as we eat the bread and drink the wine together, we're admitting that we are sinners saved by grace, without hope, except in God's sovereign mercy, that we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come with your children 
and come uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. The body of Christ is broken for you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.